Let us then return to John's Gospel, and we will choose our text this morning from verse 14 of John chapter nine, uh, 19. John chapter 19 at verse 14 will be our text where we read, And it was the preparation of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, and he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. And we particularly want to look at the words that Pilate uttered there at the end of the verse. Behold your king. And that's the title I want to give to our meditation this morning. Behold your king. We have said last week we are living in historical times. And we've also said, and we firmly believe it, that in one real way, every day is an historical day. Because God is working out his plans and purposes in providence day by day. But some days might be regarded as more historical and more noteworthy than other days. Surely this is a time where we live in today. A new prime minister, the death of a monarch, a new monarch who will probably next year be crowned at the coronation. And the public life and the life of the nation will be taken up with these activities for some considerable time. But this morning, as we gather together on the Lord's Day, and as we seek to remind ourselves something about the Lord's death and about the great work that Christ accomplished on the cross, we want to remind the people of God, and indeed unbelievers, that there is another king. There's a, a glorious king. There is one whom we are to admire and to adore, and one whom we are to have as our Lord and Savior. And this is none other than King Jesus. And we have here the words of Pilate, a Gentile idolater, a heathen. And he uttered these words in derision and scorn and contempt. But he did not realize exactly what he said and the full depth and the breadth of these words. And maybe even today as we, as we sit in this building here, we do not grasp exactly and entirely what these words mean. Behold your king. But Christian, in these days of small things, in these days when the visible Christian church is declining about us, and many are wrongfully issuing the church a death certificate, let us always encourage ourselves and let us remind ourselves of the truth of the Scripture, which tells us, Behold your King. Behold your King. Christian, you have a great and a glorious and a heavenly King. You have one who is above all the kings of this world. We know that these words were spoken by Pilate, in a scornful manner. They are a, a reaction to uh, 
what the Jews said to him in verse 12, where we read, And from henceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And here is the place where Pilate ultimately gave his judgment and handed over Christ to the wishes of the chief priests and the Jewish nation. Well, we want to look at these words, Behold your king. And we want to look at these things in three ways, through different people in the incident that we have recorded for us in the Scriptures here. And first of all, we want to notice the words, Behold your king, as they apply to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Firstly then, behold your king as they apply to Christ. What must he have thought when he heard these words? We know from the gospel record, and we know from earlier on in John's gospel, that after the time when he fed the 6,000, the people were taken with the Lord Jesus. And they looked upon him as someone who would be able to deliver them from the, the Romans. This was really the idea that the Jews had concerning the Messiah. When he would come, he would be a great, illustrious, temporal ruler. And he would then deliver them from their enemies, from the Romans who ruled over them, and to any other who might seek to take over them again. And they looked to this person, this Messiah, as merely an earthly deliverer. And when they saw what the Lord Jesus Christ did on that time when he fed the, the 6,000, they wanted to make him a king. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. He wasn't going to be a king at their behest. He wasn't going to fulfill the kingly role that they wanted, and therefore he would have none of it earlier on in his ministry. But the prophecies in the Bible tell us clearly that the Messiah indeed was going to be a king. We only have to look at Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. There we read there from Zechariah's prophecy concerning the Messiah that was to come. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal. Of an ass. Now that prophecy was fulfilled. It was fulfilled the day when he entered into Jerusalem for the final time before he went to Gethsemane 
and Gabbatha, and ultimately to Golgotha, Calvary itself. And therefore, Jesus knew that he was king. As it says here, earlier on, we read it in uh, chapter 18, verse 37. Thou thyself sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world. But what kind of king, friends, is the Lord Jesus Christ? There, as he was before the judgment of Pilate, he was beaten. He had a crown of thorns upon his head. He had a, a purple robe on him. He was bleeding. He had been beaten. He had been spat upon. He had suffered tremendously at the hands of the chief priests and the Sanhedrin and also at the, the hands of the the Roman soldiers, and we might think about that later on when we consider uh, Pilate and his part in all of this. But here we have Pilate saying, Behold your king. What kind of king was he that they saw there? They saw someone who was humble. They saw someone who was submissive. They saw someone who was led and this is very important for us to keep in our minds. The Lord Jesus Christ at this point in his life was led. He was led like the lamb to the slaughter. He did not put up any kind of resistance at all. And he was prepared to go to the ultimate thing, which was Golgotha itself, the cross, the crucifixion. And we know that some people don't like to be told about these things. They don't like to be reminded that the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternally begotten Son of God, had to come from heaven. He had to take upon himself our nature. He had to be like us. And he had to go and suffer. But suffering wasn't enough. He had ultimately to give up his life. He had to die. His blood had to be shed because without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness of sins. And I put it to you, friends, when Pilate said in a derisory manner, in a scornful manner, Behold your king! I put it to you in some sense, there was the king in his royal robes. There was the king in his finest, because he was going out to battle. And he was going out to secure the salvation of his people. We know the Bible was written some time ago. And we know that when the Bible was written in biblical times and in earlier times, what do we find? Kings went out to fight. They went out to fight with their armies. They didn't stay at home. They weren't in their palaces. They were out right in the middle of the battle. They were there encouraging their people. 
Well, here we have the Lord Jesus Christ about to enter into his greatest battle, and he was going there single-handedly, and ultimately it would end up in Golgotha on that cross. But there, friends, when Pilate said, Behold your king, it was a glorious king. But none of them could see it. None of them could see it. Here was the Lord Jesus on his route in order to obtain an everlasting and blessed kingdom and to secure the salvation of a countless number of his people. He was truly a glorious king. And only by the eye of faith can we see this. Because if he did not undertake all that was required, there would be no gospel. There would be no coming together today and to read from God's word and to proclaim the gospel. There would be no hope for mankind. We would all be on that broad road that leads unto destruction. And here we find the Lord Jesus in order to secure your salvation, Christian. He humbled himself and submitted to the behavior of wicked men. What it must have been it like for the Creator, the one who put the sun and the moon and the stars in place, the one who gives life to all to submit to this rabble, to these rogues, to these rebels. You have a glorious king. Never doubt. Never be ashamed of him. Because, friends, in his passion, which culminated with his crucifixion, he was absolutely glorious. The book of Revelation reminds us, in verse 5 of the opening chapter, Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. Our nation tomorrow is going to bury a monarch and there will be the high and the mighty from all over the world a truly historical occasion. And these men and women have power, they have authority. But friends, there's one above them all. Here he was, in a purple robe, mocked, beaten, hated, despised, rejected, even by his own. Yet he was steadfast unto the end. Yet he was a true king, a glorious king, a king worthy of our admiration and our worship and our devotion. And Christian, he is your king, and he's exercising his kingly rule over you. He has by subduing you to himself. We were just like the chief priests. We would not have this man to reign over us. What changed? 
What brought about that change? Was it your own free will? None of it. The Lord made you willing in a day of his power. He subdued you. And friends, he will defend you. This is what he does. He's still exercising this kingly role. He may indeed be the prince of the kings of the earth. And we rejoice in that. That he has absolute power over all of them. But Christian, rejoice. He has power and authority and dominion over you. And he exercises that kingly role whereby he will bring you to glory. He will defend you against his and our enemies, as our catechism would teach us. We follow the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this one suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And do we not need to be reminded about these things? Do we not need to be reminded about the ABC of the gospel? How there is no hope unless Christ give up himself that once for all perfect sacrifice? With his stripes we are healed. Glorious, wonderful, free, full salvation, secured by this one, behold your king. Well, secondly, we might notice these words as they would fall upon the ears of the chief priests. The chief priests. In the next two headings, really, we're going to see human nature at its worst. Here were the religious people of the day, the chief priests, the one who would offer sacrifices in the temple that would ultimately point to the once-for-all perfect sacrifice to be offered up by Christ himself. And they would go through their duties diligently. They would do all what's required in the ceremonial law, they would offer animals. They would pour out blood. They would do all that was required. But here, when the Messiah was before them, and as we know from the gospel record, he clearly revealed that he was the Messiah. They were without excuse. It was not through lack of evidence that re they rejected him. They rejected him because they would not believe. And here before them, the Messiah was filling out or fulfilling prophecies as he had done on other occasions. And these ones who knew the word of God, who would be able to recite it, possibly verbatim, word by word, Yet when Christ was before them, they rejected him. What a terrible, terrible picture of fallen human nature. 
And how did they come to the state where they would say, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Why would they come to this point in their experience? Friends, they came to this because there was a time when they would not believe. Now the time had come when they could not believe. And there's a big difference. I hope and I trust that all before me this morning and all who are hearing online that we're all in that position if we're not believers that we're in that position where we can say we would not believe. But there's an immense danger in remaining in that position of will not believe. Because then, after a period of time, known only to God, judicial blindness comes upon individuals. Where those who have been furnished with the truth of the gospel, where their conscience has been awakened, and when the claims of Christ have been firmly pressed upon them, and they continue in that state, God then sends them judicial blindness, whereby they cannot believe. What a terrible judgment to fall upon a person, upon a congregation, or upon a nation. And maybe, friends, as we look at this nation today, and as we see all the gospel blessings that have befallen us, as we see the privilege of having the gospel being proclaimed for centuries by faithful men up and down this country, opening up God's word and impressing upon hearers, great or large, small or whatever, that they are to embrace Christ as he is freely offered in the gospel. Yet, they do not. They will not. Then God in his sovereignty will come to that point when they cannot. This has happened in times past. It's happened with Pharaoh. You know all these terrible things that came upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians, the plagues. There came a point in the, these experiences when Pharaoh could not change. He could not believe. Why? God hardened his heart. What did God do? God simply withdrew his grace from him. And as a result, because sin goes on, sin hardened his heart so that he could not believe. There is another example we find in the King Ahab, a wicked king. He was exactly the same. Discounting the evidence, he continued in his apostasy, in his idolatry, and he was hardened. 
God withdrew his gracious presence from him, and his heart was hardened so that he could not believe. And this is what we find here. Religious people, people immersed in the Scriptures, people who knew glorious blessings, people who could go to their history, see that God had spoken to them in the law, in the prophets, in the covenants, in the ceremonial system. God was working in all of these things, yet their hearts were as hard as granite. Why? Because God had put them under judicial blindness. They were given over to their own wicked hearts. Oh, friends, there is a, a lesson here for us. It's a dreadful lesson. It's a terrible lesson. But it's a lesson that must be pressed upon us. It is a privilege to be under the gospel. It is a privilege to hear God's word proclaimed. And with all the faults and with all the failings of a, a gospel minister, yet to faithfully proclaim Christ and him crucified and urging men and women and boys and girls to come unto the Lord Jesus, to sit under a ministry like that and not to respond, is playing around with our eternal damnation. Let us be wary then. Here, these chief priests who for around three or four hours continually harassed Pilate that he would not release Christ, but that he would hand them, him over to be crucified. What hardness. What a desperate situation. Finally, thirdly, we have Pontius Pilate here. What are we to make of him? Well, basically, friends, he's a man who went against his conscience. Pilate, we might say, did all that he could in order to release the Lord Jesus. He knew he was innocent. It's repeated, I think it's three times, it's repeated, I find no fault in him. Now the Romans, with all their faults and failings, were known for their, for their law. They were known to be law keepers and to do things according to the law. And by and large, if you were under Roman law, you would be treated accordingly. And here was some, here was one who came before Pilate, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it was abundantly clear that he was innocent, and Pilate knew it. On many occasions, he tried to, to declare him innocent. But the sucker blow came in verse 12 that we've already read in chapter 19, where we read, and from henceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. 
This was one of the charges that the Jews brought about concerning Christ. He makes himself a king. And anyone who is to make himself a king is rising up against Caesar and against Caesar's authority. And Pilate knew that. And if, if Pilate had let Jesus go, they knew it, he knew exactly what would happen as a result. The chief priests and the Jewish nation would get word to Caesar, and they would simply say to Caesar, there is one in Judea who is raising up himself as a king, and he's setting himself up against Caesar. And the governor, Pontius Pilate, has done nothing about it. The likelihood would be that Pilate would have to give an answer for what he did, and more than likely, he would lose his life because he did not take the appropriate action, which would be to deal with someone who claimed to be a king, and that would be death. Pilate knew it. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he knew that in order to save his own life, he had to condemn Christ. But he knew it was all wrong. It was going against his conscience. It was a terrible judgment. He knew that Christ should have been set free. And here was a man who went against his own conscience, a man with power and with authority, a man who represented the most powerful man in the world at that day. He represented Caesar. Yet, he was a man who pleased men rather than God. He was prepared to defy and go against his conscience because he knew that Christ was innocent and he should have been set free. There may be people like Pilate in our midst today. Your conscience is screaming out to you. Your conscience has been fed. It has been instructed. You have been under the means of grace. God's word has informed your conscience. And we might say that the conscience has been alarmed. It's raising up a flag within your life. You've got a troubled conscience. And you're seeking to go against your conscience. And it's a terrible thing to go against your conscience. As Pilate found out. You are to heed it, and you are to seek to please God, and not to seek to please men. Here we are in the life of the nation, when the new king, King Charles III, will be crowned in a ceremony with great pomp probably next year, the middle of next year, who knows? What kind of ruler do we want? 
Well, friends, we want a ruler whose conscience has been instructed by the Word of God, and a ruler who will seek above all to please God. And even if he's got to please God and he will displease the people, then that's all well. Because these are the kind of leaders that we want to be our kings and to be our, our prime ministers and to be our first ministers and to those who have authority over us. We want them to be God-fearing. And we want them to put their conscience that it might be informed and that they might act according to the word of God. This should be our plea, and this should be our petition today, that the Lord would give us leaders who will seek to please God at all costs. We want leaders who will not follow public opinion, but who will be the leaders of public opinion. We want leaders who will really lead and lead in the fear of God. Pilate was really a pathetic leader. Now, you might well say to me, well, we know ultimately it was the, the decree of God that Jesus should suffer. Yes, that is true. But Pilate didn't know that. And we don't know the, the decree of God. We are to be governed by the, the Word of God, the revealed Word of God, and we are to live our lives according to what we find in the Word of God. And we are not to be concerned about God's hidden decrees that only reveal themselves in providence. Don't go against your conscience. Behold your king. Is he your king? Can you say he is your king? If you can, friends, you belong to a glorious kingdom. As we have said on other occasions, the, the kingdom of God at the moment is invisible in the sense that the kingdom is within. The kingdom of God is the rule of God in the hearts of his people. That's what it is at this moment in time. But the time will come when it will be clearly visible. When Christ returns, his kingdom will be seen. Every eye will see it. Are you part of that kingdom? Can you say with reverence, with delight, Behold, my king, this is my king, the king who suffered and died for me, the king who subdued me, the king who watches over me, defends me. He can be your king. How can he be your king? You must come to him. You must be submissive unto him. You must embrace him. You must call upon him. As he is freely offered in the gospel. Even today, come. 
Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Come, young, old. Come, gospel-hardened. Come, self-righteous. Come, hypocrite. Come. Behold your King.